I told the hostess that um, that uh, Mrs. Roberts was in the audience. Um, she made mention of that from the dais, and uh, Suzanne looked very uh, over her shoulder in a in a wonderful gesture, as if somewhere in, out there beyond her was was this person. That's Joe DiStefano from the Philadelphia Inquirer talking about a book signing for his new book, Comcasted, How Ralph and Brian Roberts Took Over America's TV, One Deal at a Time. This is Steve Lubetkin, and welcome to the Middle Chamber Bookstore Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Middle Chamber Bookstore Podcast number one. I'm Steve Lubetkin, your host. Middle Chamber Bookstore Podcast is a production of Middle Chamber Books, our Amazon.com associate bookstore, which you can find on the web at www.middlechamberbooks.com. Joining us on the podcast today, Joe DiStefano. Joe's the author of Comcasted, a book about how Ralph and Brian Roberts took over America's TV one deal at a time. Joe DiStefano has been a business reporter at the Philadelphia Inquirer since 1997. He previously worked at newspapers in Delaware, Indiana, and New Jersey, and at many other jobs, including five years as a migrant farm labor organizer. He's won regional press awards for his articles about corporate tax shelters, the credit card industry, state investments, successful banks, and failed insurers. His article, The Empire Builder, part of his Inquirer magazine series about Saul Steinberg's Reliance Insurance Company and its collapse, was included in the anthology Best Business Stories of the Year in 2003, and is quoted extensively in Michael Gross's recent bestseller, 740 Park. Joe graduated from Philadelphia Catholic Schools and the University of Pennsylvania. He lives with his wife and six children near Philadelphia, and he joined us recently in the studio to talk about his book, Comcasted. Steve Lubetkin here, and uh, our guest on the podcast today is Joe DiStefano. Joe from the Philadelphia Inquirer, a journalist with a long history in the Philadelphia market, who is the author of Comcasted, a book about the nation's number one cable TV company, Comcast, and the story of how it became the largest cable company in the industry. Welcome, Joe. Steve, it's good to be here with you. Thanks for taking the time. Tell us a little bit to get started about what made you decide to write about Comcast. You normally write about uh, financial institutions. and They really have been the biggest business story in Philadelphia these last few years. They're about to uh, assume a lot higher profile locally with the big building they're having constructed in Center City. Uh, they passed uh, Cigna some years ago as the uh, largest uh, corporation by the value of the company and uh, headquartered in Philadelphia. And uh, there, it's a product that everybody in our area and in many of the major markets of the country uses. It's a service, rather, uh, that, that we all are, are familiar with. It is the most valuable company, barring only a couple others, on the NASDAQ stock market. And it's uh, become that, uh, it became that very quietly. It was a company that didn't really have a lot of a public profile up until just a few years ago when they went after first AT&T and then Walt Disney, a couple of the old uh, Dow Jones stocks, and uh, all of a sudden really established itself outside of cable as a, as a national player, as, as one of the big companies that people pay attention to. Now, had, had you actually been covering Comcast at any point, or uh, was this just something that interested you? Yeah, Steve, you know, I covered the banks all through the 1990s, first at the Wilmington paper and at the, at the Inquirer uh, since 1997. 
uh, around 2000, a little bit after 2000, we expanded our business staff, added a number of new reporters, and I was able to specialize just a little bit more. And I was asked to take on the financial beat to write uh, some uh, stories that went into a little bit greater depth on uh, how the companies made their money and uh, where it went, uh, supporting some of the other reporters. And in the course of that reporting, I began to help to cover Comcast. And so um, your book takes us from the very beginnings of Comcast as a, a very small family-run business. Uh, Ralph Roberts started down in the, in the Deep South. Tell us a, a little bit about how the company got started and how it got to where it is today. Sure. You know, Philadelphia, when I came back here to report, had a sense of ourselves as, as a place where it's almost an industrial museum. You drive around the city and you see the old Philadelphia National Bank and the Pennsylvania Railroad and all these giant companies that aren't there anymore. And, you know, in the 90s, a lot of those companies were getting sold. But when we really started to look around at what was left, what we found is that the really big industries, uh, the service industries of the late 20th century, uh, all had their biggest players, or some of the very biggest players in Philadelphia. You look at, and in the area, you look at Vanguard Mutual Funds, MBA credit cards, Amerisource uh, and Merck, and a lot of the drug and drug distribution companies, um, Aramark uh, Food Service, well, Comcast Cable Television. And all these companies came about some more and some less in, in roughly similar ways. And that is there was a person, there was an individual who started out with a very small player in a very crowded field and made the company bigger and bigger. And how did, in Comcast's case, did they do that? And uh, what was the, you know, it's never just one person, it's an environment. And what we found in uh, the case of Philadelphia was uh, a combination of the, you know, the the industry getting a lot of its early impetus in and around Philadelphia, cable television. Philadelphia was a real center of the electrical equipment industry. The first cable millionaire was uh, the governor of Pennsylvania, Milton Schapp, who built and financed uh, a lot of the early cable systems around eastern Pennsylvania. Um, Ralph Roberts approached this very much as an investor. He was not a TV guy. Uh, he was a guy who, whose eye was on the main chance. His father was an entrepreneur. He himself went to the Wharton School. Father died young. Uh, after his uh, time in the service at the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard, he went into business, a couple of ventures that really had nothing directly to do with, you know, television or cable television. He sold golf clubs. He borrowed Bob Hope's um, the image, really, and, and, and uh, used his brand, even though there was formally no marketing agreement. The product turned out to be defective. He moved on to something else. He worked in advertising. He got involved in a belt and suspender company, a family-run company. Um, that he ended up uh, heading and eventually selling off after he was sued a couple of times for allegedly knocking off the competitors' products. He was a businessman, and uh, and he learned with some of the best. And he married into a family in Philadelphia that was very well established, very prominent in business. Um, and the the Fleischers, who had been in the city uh, for a hundred years by the time he met his wife uh, Suzanne Fleischer, who's still very much with us, and who some might know as Suzanne Roberts, uh, the senior citizen uh, columnist on uh, CN8, the uh, Comcast uh, news station. Uh, her family, again, was very well established in the city's community. Philadelphia, in those days, even more than today, was, was a somewhat ethnically divided city in which there were, you know, there was such a thing as, as the Irish Bank and the Italian Bank, and uh, there was the, the Jewish law firm and the Jewish Investment Bank, and these were companies that had, had firms that had done work for the Fleischers over the years. It made Ralph's entree that much easier and provided him with some of the early capital that he needed as well as the know-how and the faith that he needed 
to in terms of faith in what he was doing that Wolf Block, for example, was willing to commit its pension fund to some of his early ventures. Way down in Mississippi. And why Mississippi? Why of all places? Why Mississippi? Yeah. <laughs> you may well ask. Um, the cable business started in Pennsylvania and a few other places around the country in the late 40s and early 50s. These fellows came back from World War II um, who had been in the Army Signal Corps, as Milton Schaap had been in the Army Signal Corps, and learned quite a bit about you know radio and broadcast and how to move signals. And you know Pennsylvania, as I say in the book, if you hammered it flat, it'd be bigger than Texas. It's full of valleys, you know, that that block the signals. The early broadcast signals couldn't get out of Philadelphia, and Washington, and New York, and out to Scranton and, and many of the upstate uh, cities. And so it was natural that you'd get these wonderful army of entrepreneurs, you know, going up the mountainsides and stringing cable down into the coal towns and the valley towns, and uh, bringing in this product for free on Milton Shep's antennas and retailing it for $2 or $3 a month so that people could see, you know, the handful of stations that were available at that time. Well, that went on for, for a good uh, 10 years, 12 years, 15 years. It was a good little business. It, was a, it became a better business over time as, as investors from Philadelphia and New York started stringing these little cable companies together and needed outside capital to do it and they needed outside know-how to do it. And there was an accountant, Julian Brodsky, who worked actually for a mostly Irish firm in Philadelphia. He had been an organizer for the uh, clothing and textile workers, no, for the ILGWU, for really a left-wing labor union in, in Philadelphia, um, before he went into accounting and became an auditor and loved auditing. But as they sent him out into the mountains to work for these cable guys, he uh, developed an expertise, he loved the business. Um, and he was exactly the kind of guy that Ralph Roberts in the 60s when he was turning to cable television as one of the several businesses that he invested in, you know, was one of the first people he hired was, 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 was this, you know, were people who came out of the, uh, the Pennsylvania cable community. So uh, take us a couple of years forward. Ralph starts the cable company in Mississippi. How does he go about doing that? What made him get into it? He bought it. Cable. Someone else had actually started the franchise and had built part of it and had not built a couple of other pieces of it. Uh, Mississippi in the 19, early 1960s was not a place where a lot of northern capitalists wanted to go. Uh, the headlines out of Mississippi in those days were somewhat like the headlines out of a third world country today. There were people being killed. African Americans were trying to organize for the right to vote. Uh, people from the north who came down there were very much resented and sometimes killed. This is around the time of the Freedom Riders? This was in 63, Okay. Uh, very specifically. And it was exactly into some of those communities where the opposition and the, and the Ku Klux Klan were the best entrenched uh, that, uh, that, these, that these cable com uh, businesses came up for sale. And uh, when Ralph decided some years into the cable industry that he wanted to be in it, those were some of the franchises that were available to him. And uh, he did come in through Pete Musser, a very familiar figure in Philadelphia, uh, one of the conglomerateers of the 1940s and 50s and early 60s. Um, some of you might remember from Safeguard Scientifics and Internet Capital in the late 1990s. That's that same Pete Musser um, had got hold of the system and was looking to sell it. And the fellow he used to sell it was a former newspaperman who had become enchanted with Milton Chap and had gone to work as a cable industry broker, Danny Aaron. And uh, he eventually approached Ralph about buying this cable system. Ralph bought it, but on condition that Aaron stay around to run it, and Julian Brodsky, the accountant, who had become, who was completely impressed by Ralph as a person, much as Aaron had been by Governor Shep, future Governor Shep, you know, said, I want to come to work for you too. Walked into the office, he tells the story with a folding table and chair, and, uh, and, and they're really the people who started Comcast. 
you know, Ralph Roberts with the money and the, and the connections to money and expertise, and Julian Brodsky, the accountant, and Aaron, uh, Dan, Dan Aaron, the operating guy, who would go out there and, as he put it, you know, beat up the cable to, uh, to get the water out of it, do whatever was necessary to get, to get cable on the street. And it was, a, it was a threadbare business at the beginning. You know, they really needed a lot of ingenuity. They needed to make friends in a lot of places where it was hard to make friends. Um, but as they were successful in Mississippi, they started stitching together um, businesses in other parts of the country. And it was hard to raise the money to do that. This was a risky business. Uh, a lot of the early cable operators were very, very leveraged. They had lots and lots of debt. And um, Comcast, you know, which wasn't even called Comcast until, until it went public at the end of the 60s, um, beginning of the 70s, um, tr tried to raise that money in partnership with other firms. They went with the McLeans in Philadelphia, for example, that owned the Bulletin. And then the McLeans decided they didn't want to be in cable anymore. And, and, and Ralph had to sell the system down in Sarasota, Florida, which he dearly coveted. It's a great cable market. And he vowed to himself, more or less, never again am I going to get in this position. And at the beginning of the 70s, they, they did look to take the company public. And right around that time, the bottom dropped out of the market. You know. <laughs> Timing uh, is everything. Well, and you know, cable is a business that's always had a lot of enemies. You know, the broadcasters weren't crazy about giving away their product for free. They got the government involved in, in, in restricting what cable could do. Uh, there came a point when the country was pretty much built out with cable. Everything except the big cities, which just weren't profitable. And so in the early 70s, you know, Comcast did manage to go public. They went public, they wanted to go $10 a share, they had to go public at 7 Pretty soon it was trading at $0.70, cents, you know, and, and the joke around the office was at the end of the day, do you buy another share of Comcast or just go out for a beer, it costs you about the same. Um, what saved them, what saved the cable industry was uh, satellite uh, communications. You know, the ability with the RCA satellites developed for the Cold War to broadcast, you know, the Fraser Ali fights and uh, eventually um, uh, adult movies and pay-per-view and things. Yeah, like that. when I say adult movies, I mean movies that you couldn't see on television right. at the time. And the pay-per-view, and you know, uh, the idea that there could be some unique content that you couldn't already get in the cities. And you know, once by the middle of the '70s, when it became clear that was the way of the future, um, interest in the cities revived. I mean, New York was already wired for cable; wasn't terribly profitable. Philadelphia took 20 years. You know, it became an industry for the politicians on city council to, you know, toy with a series of cable operators who wanted to, to wire the city. Yeah, and I remember uh, working in the city for years, and it was uh, it was a holy grail at the end of the tunnel right. kind of thing. That that finally, when I stopped working in Philadelphia, they were just at the point of uh, a wiring cable. 20 years yeah. it took. And then you had Dannenberg uh, for a while who owned the Inquirer wanted to do it and who owned TV Guide. You had the McLean's who owned the Bulletin. You had the people from the Baltimore Sun. You had the uh, big uh, media companies in, in Washington and and uh, a lot of operators tried. Comcast was there at the beginning and they were there at the end. They got the most lucrative franchise which was Northeast Philadelphia and they promised that in exchange they'd move the headquarters downtown which they did. And you know this, this was a period in which businesses were moving out of Philadelphia and not in. And um, Comcast cultivated the politicians. They did what they said they were going to do with regard to the city. They ended up in the 90s acquiring a couple of the city's sports teams so that they would have more unique uh, programming content. You know, that added to their role as an employer in the city. And it's not surprising that by the late 90s, when other companies started to try and come in and compete with Comcast, that uh, Mayor and then Governor Rendell and the other politicians took a very protective role toward Comcast. They really protected, very openly protected the company's monopoly in the city because they considered that uh, Comcast did for Philly, Philly's going to do for Comcast. And they are today, even today, one of the largest employers, if not the largest private sector employer in the Well, that, that's interesting. Delaware you know, Valley. they're not as large as many other companies. You know, Vanguard and 
Merck and the University of Pennsylvania and you know you could name well over a dozen probably two or three dozen companies that employ as many or more people than Comcast in this region. Comcast really is a national company their headquarters is a couple of thousand people that's not as large as a lot of the banks are. Um, what they are is a valuable and increasingly high profile company that happens to be based in Center City, Philadelphia, not like Vanguard that's out in Melbourne and isn't even publicly traded, or Merck that's based somewhere over in New Jersey, or Cigna that's been shrinking, or you know, DuPont and MBNA, which are in you know Wilmington, which you know is a whole different state. These guys are right downtown. Aramark's the only other company you can really say is a very large public company based in Philly. Aramark has an even leaner headquarters presence than what Comcast does. So, That's interesting. So they're a big player in, in that respect. Compared to what? Yes, they are. How long did it take from uh, the time you started researching the book to the time that it actually uh, got on the shelf? Project took place over a couple of years, but there was really one year in which I did most of the intensive work. You know, I went to the Inquirer archives and did you know, a clip job on the 40 years worth of stories that we'd done there. I contacted a lot of people in the industry. You know, some of the people I quote in the book are Ted Aronson, who, for example, was, was about the only boss Brian ever had outside of Comcast as a young man. Very impressed with him back at Drexel and Company, you know, Michael Milken's old oh, right. before, you know. Um, and, you know, I went to Jerry Lenfest, who was Comcast's big competitor and who was actually Mr. Cable in Philadelphia up until quite recently when they basically forced him to sell in one of the series of deals in which Comcast has basically ambushed and outsmarted the opposition and taken it over. Jerry Lenfest is a big philanthropist in Philadelphia today. He laughs that he's giving away Ralph Roberts' money. Didn't want to retire when he did. But they made it worth his while in the end when he couldn't do anything. And he's a multi-billionaire as a consequence. Well, he is a more than a billionaire, and he plans to die broke. He's been giving it away very aggressively, which not all Philadelphia um, fortunes do. Not all fortunes do ever, anywhere. Um, I asked uh, Jerry Lenfest, I said, you know, there are people in the nonprofit community who criticize Comcast and the Roberts who claim that they somehow don't give what you might expect them to do. You know, they're not the ones who gave the, um, the, uh, the new... Um, it's the arts facilities that we have in Philadelphia. Their names are not on a whole lot of, of, of new school buildings or libraries. And again, he laughed and, and pointed out that he, Jerry Lenfest, is giving away a lot of Ralph Roberts' money. What the Roberts have is most is a lot of it tied up in the company. Uh, they do give to a lot of small charities. Um, and you know, our you know, the museum, the university, the academy, you know, they have given some money, but not the enormous gifts that that. Uh, that people give when they're winding up the fortune for good. And part of that is that the Robertses are dynastic. The Fleischers before them were here for a hundred years and really got to looking at the donations they made in a dynastic or generational way. And uh, there's every reason to expect that the Robertses, if they can, will we'll want to pass this on someday, possibly to another generation. You, you indicated uh, in, in the book that you didn't get a whole lot of cooperation from Comcast in, in preparing it. Talk about the difficulties of writing a book about a company without having access to the people in the company. Well, you know, Steve, I've had good training for that in that uh, covering the banking sector, as I did for some years, uh, there are big companies that would talk to us very readily, and there are big companies that uh, would, would, would not even answer phone calls. And the job of the reporter is to go ahead and tell that story and tell it fairly using the best information that we can, whether or not they'll talk to us. Comcast is a public company. There's a lot of information they have to make public. In the last few years, they have become a much more open company than they were um, because they've taken a higher profile. They're a lot more valuable. They're in a lot more different markets. But they are still a company where the founding family controls the show. Not that they own most of the stock, but that they have a disproportionate 
share of the voting rights for that stock. They essentially control the company without having to own it or you know own most. Are there two shares. classes of stock? There are multiple classes of stock. Yeah, and uh, the voting stock they still have thirty five percent of. It was more than ninety percent until the AT and T deal. AT and T was such a widely held company that they that some of the institutional shareholders apparently insisted that Comcast cut it back. But thirty five percent is still by any measure a controlling stake. And when you have that kind of you know control over the votes, you perhaps become accustomed to having that kind of control over the message as well. Uh, Comcast was cooperative up to a point, but when I said of you know everybody in Philadelphia, all the business reporters have talked at one time or another to Ralph and Brian Roberts on different stories we've done. I know I have, um, and I've talked to people who've done business with them for years. You know people like the like the chairman of Tyco, um, Ed Breen, who's now on their board, you know, talked to me very freely and willingly about Comcast and referred me to a number of other, you know, business managers and some business owners who did likewise and they're quoted in the book. Um, but when it came to talking to the Robertses themselves, I was told by um, David Cohen and the other people who, who run the company uh, that Ralph was not available. He was considering writing his own memoirs. He had his own project going to tell it in his words. And I sure hope he does. It'll be a great story to tell, but it'll be his story, uh, which he's been telling in bits and pieces and different spins for 40 years. Uh, Brian, on the other hand, they initially told me would be available. And I talked to Brian briefly, and he said he'd be available, and we'd talk about it. Uh, but they started coming up with conditions. And, you know, first they wanted to a list of the questions that I'd ask. Well, there are some interviews that ask us for that, and sometimes we give them to them, and I saw no particular harm in doing that. And and they said they'd get right back to me, and it was a few months, so I called them again, and they, they wanted me to go over again just what it was I was planning here, and I got back to them again, and they said, well, look, you know, uh, don't take this the wrong way, but we'd like to read some chapters of the book before it comes out. And I said, you know, we don't do that at the newspaper, and I'm sure my publisher wouldn't want me to do that either. And uh, the publisher agreed, you know, we're not going to give prior review to anybody. And at that point, you know, everything ground to a halt, and, and then they said, well, we really... If we're going to invest time, you know, in, in, in knowing what you're going to write, we really want to be able to see what you're writing. Now, I've since then heard from people who did public relations for Walt Disney, for example, uh, that Comcast represents that the reporters who cover it uh, get permission before using quotes from the boss. And I checked with my colleague, uh, Tony Naffa, who covered them for the Inquirer, and he confirmed that Comcast asked for this. But on reflection, he, he, he turned them down. He said, you know, I can't grant you that. That's just not the way we do things. If we give the people we write about you know, almost the right to approve or disapprove what we're going to say about them and, you know, to pick and choose from what they told us, you know, they're really taking a hand in, in producing the project. And they put out a lot of their own information. There's no reason they should put out ours as well. Yeah, there's a, there's a uh, sort of a uh, disconnect between the traditional uh, communications done by companies and the communications that companies in the entertainment industry expect. Uh, where it's all tightly controlled and a lot of the Hollywood publicists um, make deals with the uh, Hollywood journalists, quote-unquote, the media that cover Hollywood. Some of the media, yes. I've asked Kerry Rickey, who is one of the several fine film critics that we have at the Philadelphia Inquirer, and uh, she has told me, you know, there's always pressure in that direction and you just have to resist. You know, there's plenty of stuff that comes out of Hollywood that, that is as if it was written by the um, PR manager for that star. Uh, but, you know, she says there's no reputable journalist in the, in the mainstream media that would have any, that would, you know, want to be caught doing anything like that. Sure. It's just not the way she would operate, not the way I would operate. 
Um, so what's been the reaction from Comcast now that the book is out? They've not reacted to me directly, although Suzanne Roberts, Ralph's wife, Brian's mother, did come with her daughter to one of my book signings. Oh, that it must was, have been interesting. Oh, it was charming. They went to the Barnes & Noble in, um, oh gosh, I think it was Bryn Mawr, um, some months ago. And, uh, you know, I, I, the first few, I've done about um, 25 of those kinds of events, some of them on radio stations, TV, cable TV, and mostly live audiences and you know the first few I brought my kids with me just in case you know the seats weren't filled we could kind of we could kind of you know put them in there and I wouldn't feel so lonely but Brynmore was one where we we had a full house and um, I recognized Suzanne Roberts she's a very striking woman she's quite a long in years she's in her 80s but she's on TV and people see her and I went right over to her and you know thanked her for coming and she was very regal my wife had no idea who she was and said to her oh you know or do you know the author and um, Mrs. Uh, Robert's daughter said, uh, no, we've come to find out about him. And my wife <laughs> said, oh, well, I'm his wife. And the daughter said, oh, really, mother, this is the author's wife. And she got a, how do you do? And uh, very theatrical. It was wonderful when I told the hostess that, um, that uh, Mrs. Roberts was in the audience. Um, she made mention of that from the dais, and uh, Suzanne looked very uh, over her shoulder in a, in a wonderful gesture as if somewhere in, out there beyond her was, was this person. When it came time for the question and answer session, it was the daughter who did all the questioning. There was a fellow there from the two different township cable board who was just infuriated at Comcast, and she cut him off and immediately started arguing the company's line, and anybody else that asked a question, it got to where I had to moderate the discussion because they weren't going to give an inch. But when she got to questioning me, she It's a good asked, thing they didn't have any strong uh, <laughs> opinions on it. Well, that was wonderful. There were a lot of strong opinions in the room, and that made it fun. Um, and, and it was fun to be a moderator rather than you know just only the advocate for my book at that point. But um, when she started questioning me, it was along the lines, well, why didn't you talk to these people? And I explained exactly what had happened. And she said, but you don't put that in the book, do you? And I said, ma'am, it's right there in the introduction. It's the first thing in the book, you know, is who talked to me and who didn't and why and how we did the story. And after that, she was more conciliatory, and she did buy the book, and her assistant even had me sign a copy, an additional copy. So I was glad they came. Uh, apparently, Brian Roberts told my colleague who was covering the company at the time that I didn't seem to like business people or the idea of anybody getting rich, which my colleague thought was comical because he'd been my boss, and he knew how much I enjoy covering business and you know, how much I appreciate the opportunity that we have in America you know, to build these kind of companies and employ thousands of people. That's a marvelous thing. But Steve, I just think it's important that people be able to contain two ideas in their head at the same time without their head exploding. You can admire the fact that this enterprise has been built from almost nothing um, by these very canny people who have you know, worked very hard to position themselves to reap you know, really large profits. Uh, because of the uniqueness of the service that they're in a position to offer without liking the result, without liking the prices, without liking the TV choices, without liking the service, which is often rated very poorly in objective surveys. You know, you don't have to like the whole package. You know, it's possible to, to be able to respect the job a person does uh, while still being critical of the impact that it has in your life or in other people's lives. And I think that that is a very reasonable way to regard Comcast and the people who've built it. And the company hasn't been terribly happy about that, but nor have they, to my knowledge. They haven't been overt in going out and trying to stop the publication. They've, you know, there are individuals who've had conversations. And it's been hard to get the book covered in Philadelphia. Had a nice review in the Boston Globe, nice review in Publishers Weekly, radio stations from, you know, Vail, Colorado to Atlantic City to 
you know, uh, suburban Boston, you know, that, that I've been on the program, the Free Library of Philadelphia. I've been in a number of uh, Barnes and Nobles bookstores. And, uh, West and now we're going to circ circumvent the mainstream media completely, which is where you make your living, the mainstream media. Steve, it's wonderful what you're doing. You know, the, this podcast and this idea of circulating it, you know, peer-to-peer, -peer, uh, totally individual level and a mass market level at the same time. That, that's really where we're all going. What do you think a company like Comcast, uh, when they look at the uh, non-conventional media like podcasting, I mean, you know enough about the company to speculate on what they might think, how they might react, what their plans are even to, to deal with uh, podcasting and, and the other new technologies. You might know a Philadelphian ham named Blumenthal, who was among the... Howard Blumenthal, whose father was producer of the old um, concentration television show, and who he himself sure. developed Where is the World is Carmen Sandiego, and he wrote the business plan for MTV, and uh, really quite you know, one of Philadelphia's leading lights in, in, in television, a nationally known figure. And uh, one of the people who, by the way, wrote a, wrote a nice blurb for the book, you can, you can see the nice things he has to say on the back of it. Um, you know, I, a little bit before I was finished writing the book, I went out to, uh, we, we had lunch together at the Sansom Street Oyster House, and I was very interested in a project that uh, he had put together called New Century TV. And, and in this project, very much like what you're doing, on a little bit more primitive level, because it was a little bit earlier time, um, Howard and his partner were putting together websites for universities, for businesses, and um, basically hosting them. Um, and it was a service that you really needed high speed, you need high speed internet to, to be able to access. And because high speed internet was just starting to explode, they were seeing a real increase in demand for the service. And I said, well, isn't this wonderful? And he said, you know, this is what TV was supposed to be. We can make thousands and thousands of channels online. Everybody can run their own or we can run them for people. And you'll be able to choose, you know, a, a channel that's all about garlic, you know, a channel that's all about Swedenborgianism. And, and I said, well, isn't that going to destroy the cable companies? Isn't that going to destroy the people who dominate TV today? He said, no, don't you see? They're also the gatekeepers for high-speed Internet. You know, they're the fastest-growing Internet provider in the country is Comcast. And it just creates more customers for them. And I'm totally dependent on them, he says. You know, to get distributed, he needs Comcast. Uh, so at that point, the technology actually fed into cable rather than taking away. Now, what you're doing with the pod and with these and with these packets that can really move through many different media, wireless as well as ultimately wireless as well as wired, that will be breaking free from the distributors to a certain extent in that they can go through multiple channels. Of course, we're still going to need a place to host it, and right. people are going to need to be able to stream it or download it. You still need servers. You still need distribution. It kind of reminds me of the um, the old Barney's clothing store commercials back before they became a very upscale carriage trade fancy uh, suit store when they were still a bargain store. Um, and uh, there was a, a commercial about you know, kids in a classroom, and they asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they went around the whole classroom, and they got to Barney. He looked around the room and said, you're all going to need clothes. <laughs> so that's uh, sort of the way, where, where Comcast is, you're all going to need uh, that's internet their access hope. of some kind. That's their hope. Now, the stock's down this past year. And, you know, Andy Kessler, who's a very well-known, you know, former telecom analyst, you know, from the from the in, in the early internet era, uh, went on to be a hedge fund manager and is and the author of a very funny book, Wall Street Meat, about his, his friends among the analysts and those that went to jail and those that escaped jail. Um, you know, he's a persistent critic of Comcast, and he just had an item in the paper, you know, last week uh, about how um, Comcast went down this year when so many stocks went up, because you know, no matter how they try to slice it and add products, 
the wire is distribution is not ultimately he feels going to be able to control how people get their information, um, and that at the end of the day, it's just a utility. Uh, that's not certain. Will it be the people who produce programming? Uh, will they ultimately be the ones who dominate in the new era, who, who, who make what profits are to be made? Or will it be the people who control distribution? It's well, and, and uh, obviously Comcast wants to be on both sides of that equation because they've tried very hard to become content owners. The content that they've been very successful with is the inexpensive content. QVC was the best investment Comcast ever made. They put in, I think, something well under a billion and they got nearly 10 billion came time to sell it. I mean, that, just think about it, you know, QVC. People pay to have the service in their house. They pay to have cable TV. The people selling the products pay to have the service carried. And then at the end of the day, when the products are purchased, they got a cut of it that way too. I mean, it's just phenomenally profitable. It's utterly unglamorous. Well, some people find it glamorous because it's television after all. Make tours of the studio. In some sense, it's the classified ads <laughs> yeah. of... Uh... But nobody yet thinks that CN80, which is their news operation, even though they have hired some people that really know a lot about television, it's not in any position right now to threaten the networks. The other things they own pieces of, you know, they're very much niche markets. Are they going to go to 500 channels? You know, 500 stations? Are they going to really be able to produce quality programming that people are going to want to pay for? It has not been their forte. They've admitted they were late to get into the game, and they don't like paying full price. So, um, in in the course of your research on Comcast, did you come across anything that surprised you that you you didn't realize about them? <laughs> oh, there were many things. Yeah, I had not a, a deep, deep knowledge of the company coming into it. I think I was fascinated by the family story, uh, by the the personal backgrounds, by the roots, by the way, certainly that Ralph came up, by the different versions he's told. You know, sometimes there are incidents that get told two or three different ways over the period of a year or many years. Were you able to reconcile the variations? Or? Oh no, some of the some of the variations really can't rec don't reconcile. It's as if he was, like many of us, you know, trying for a different effect with a different audience, and you know, it, it really does is it makes you skeptical of the wonderful, very readable business histories that are written. You know, uh, Barbarians at the Gates is a great book. It's a classic book. But there's a lot of conversations in there and in the books on Enron and in later books that are two-person conversations that the person writing the book was not there to listen to. Now, I have written stories in which I can recreate two-person conversations because the government tapped them, as with Commerce Bank last year, and we have a transcript. And even those transcripts, sometimes you see words that are spelled wrong. When you have a, an account that is obviously reconstructed from one person's memory, weeks, months, or sometimes years after the event, it is a fiction. And this is a problem as old as Thucydides, you know, who admitted he did not hear the conversations between the Greeks and the Persians that he so faithfully recounted, and apologizes for it and says he put words in their mouth that were as near as he thought that they were speaking. You know, I purposely tried to avoid that kind of situation in the book. When you had a large group of people present and somebody, you know, it, myself or somebody from Business Week or somebody from one of the major news outlets recorded this in front of a group of people and quoted it, you know, I would quote it and, you know, give the source if the, if the source was another person and, you know, that's one thing. But to claim, you know, just what did Ralph tell Brian the day after they bought AT&T? Well, they told the Inquirer one thing and they told the um, New York Times something a little different and the Wall Street Journal had a third version. You know, all based on first-hand accounts. So, where's the reality there? It's it's the story that sounds nice. It's it's what you want people to think happened. And it's also a little bit true what they say about eyewitness accounts. Yes. So. Yes, they, they, they tend to creep. 
How is the book doing? Uh, you you were talking before. We I get a sales recorded. figure. You know, every six months. I know that in the first couple of months is the only report that I've received to date. And you know, it sold several hundred copies. It was selling, I think, ten copies a day back at that point. We did some more promotion over the summer. We run radio in a lot of places. It's not a big national publisher. It's a Philadelphia publisher. There is a surviving industry here. There's Camino Books, a commercial publisher. They do a lot of mob books, Camino does, and a lot of cookbooks, and not a lot of business books. This is, this is uh, one of their first titles on that side. And um, so, you know, we're not going to break the top of the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, but it, I see it every Borders and Barnes and Noble that I go into, and it goes up and down on Amazon. Do, do you go in and like secretly check out how many copies are on the shelf? Or oh, sure, anybody's I can looking at them. I can't resist. Can't resist. Do you do you like uh, open them up to the uh, to the author's photo and like, <laughs> you know, see if anybody notices? Well, the temptation is, you know, you'd, you'd really wish you were the bookstore manager and you could scatter them around a few different parts of the store. But they know what they're doing. They're in the business of selling books. Is there is there another book in your future? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, I have six kids, and when I first was writing this, my youngest son said to me, "Dad, you know, we hope we don't you don't do another book anytime soon." And uh, but when it came out, and they had it in their hands to hold, and they saw that I was on TV and radio, they, uh, the same kid came up and said, "Dad, I hope you do another book really soon." And I said, "What do you want me to write about?" He said, "An adventure story." I said, "Son, Comcast it is an adventure story." <laughs> Joe DiStefano, thanks very much. We appreciate your being here. The book is Comcasted, How Ralph and Brian Roberts Took Over America's TV, One Deal at a Time. Joe DiStefano is business writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer and the author of Comcast. We thank you for joining the podcast. Thank you, Steve. And there it is, the inaugural podcast in our Middle Chamber Books podcast series, spotlighting books and authors for our Middle Chamber Books Bookstore, an Amazon.com associate on the web at www.middlechamberbooks.com. Please visit the bookstore to buy Joe's book and all the other books that we have available for you. If you have comments or suggestions about books and authors we should profile in the podcast, please send us an email. My address is steve at lubetkin, L-U-B-E-T-K-I-N dot N-E-T. Our theme music comes from garageband.com. It's a podcast-friendly band called the Indianapolis Jazz Orchestra, and the title track of their latest CD, Cook the Books. For the Middle Chamber Books podcast, this is Steve Lubetkin. Thanks for listening, and go read a book.